0: I'm Claire Daly and you're listening to the Bloomsbury Institute podcast, recorded live at Bloomsbury Publishing in Bedford Square, London. For details of our future events and to listen to all of our other podcasts, go to www.bloomsburyinstitute.com.
1: Good evening and welcome to this literary salon. Um, It's too late to grab wine now, so if you've had wine, congratulations. If you haven't, commiserations. I'd like to welcome three very extraordinary writers uh, to this Salon. Some fictional, some historical, some historical fictional, really, as we shall uh, discuss. Um, really, it's quite a, a, a serendipitous coupling. And I, I must sort of congratulate Claire from uh, Bloomsbury in this seemingly random peopling of the stage this evening, but for any of you who have read the three works, I think you'll see the logic and the sense and the artistry in such a coupling. It's became more and more obvious to me why these three people are here this evening. The three people uh, being uh, Kate Worsley, She Rises, uh, that's the fiction bit, although a lot of research, I think, are uh, happening there, Anna uh, Whitelock, Elizabeth's um, Elizabeth Bedfellows, and Lucy Lethbridge, uh, the book on Servants. I want to um, start with an image I work in the theatre and I want to start with an image and that is uh, of first year acting students in a drama, st- in a drama studio uh, and it's a game called Master and Servant which is very, very popular with acting students in their first year and it requires two people to come up and uh, one of the students takes a chair and stands on it, Master and another, another student comes up and stands beside that High, highly raised student, servant. The master is given a rolled-up newspaper or something quite violent. And the task for the servant is to get the newspaper because the master will keep hitting that servant if he or she doesn't, really. A game much enjoyed by all actors in training. But it seems a fitting sort of perhaps start in terms of the dynamic, the the, the relationship between... Master and servant and those that serve and those that own in the three works we have this evening. So I want to start with that as as our start of a ten, really. In what way is the master trapped with being master and the servant forever trapped being servant? It seems to me that in each of these works there is a, a, a sort of uncoupling of those roles, an uncoupling of those formidably forceful lines that are drawn and servants in some ways become quite masterful. I'm thinking of the Elizabethan court here. And also uh, masters become formidably unmasterful. I'm thinking perhaps of She Rises. So maybe we'll start with our fictional world. Uh, in what way is the master always masterful and the servant trapped in a life of servitude? Well, in, I
0: don't know if you've if anyone's read She Rises yet, but um, it's a rather unconventional look at, at mistresses and servants. Um, and in it, there's a... The, the central relationship is between a mistress and her maid. Um, and they are not trapped, actually. The trap comes when, when, they, when those roles, for whatever reason, when they lose those roles. Um, and that is what... Um, Imperils the relationship, so it's a relationship that um, is in, instigated and um, sort of continued by by that power dynamic, which has something very erotic and <laughs> exciting about it. You know, from Fifty Shades of Grey to other other you know older versions of the master servant relationship. Um, so in, so yes, those roles work for them for a certain amount of time, but then when that role those when they when they lose those roles, it, it imperils the relationship in a in a really basic way.
1: There's the most wonderful description of the blending of family and service in servants and how families d- decided to either keep them at arm's length and distant and anonymous or embrace them into the family fold. Uh, in, in in what way is that sort of master servant relationship in in servants? Um, questioned or problematized, do you think Lucy
2: I think it was one of the most important questions of of the twentieth century in fact in the relationship between masters and servants then because I think that the older model um until the mid nineteenth century was a much more free flowing loose, flexible household of people coming in and out of of people who were in service, but also part of the family who often slept with their employers. And I think that changed in the middle of the 19th century, and it was the beginning of the Green Bay's door, really. And and then there became this rather awkward feeling of two communities living side by side in the same house, Um, and all sorts of awkward questions about class, about status, about the status of labour, all these things. rather chafed at the relationship, and so by the Second World War, with the end of service, um, I think people let go of that later model with some relief. Mm. It it, it seems to me that
1: the um, codification of service, besides both of your works, in terms of... you, the, the, the service was defined by colour, by code, by cloth, and certainly in the Elizabethan court, people knew where they were within those emblems. Do, do you also see that relationship of, of server and served in, in some way very ambiguous and, and problematized in terms of, the, certainly through the sort of decades that we, we follow with Elizabeth, it, it all becomes so blended and, and, and problematical?
3: Yes, I mean, I, I wouldn't accept the sort of, that framework at all, yeah. really. I mean, because I mean, the key to understanding um, the Tudor court, really, at this period, is to understand that the actual body of the monarch uh, was the body of the realm, and therefore, in order to be close to or to be able to be close to the monarch in the most sort of intimate bodily service, was actually also to be politically significant. Um, this whole notion of the politics of intimacy. You know, the most significant figure, arguably, at the court of Henry VIII was the groom of the stool the you know the guy responsible for the royal commode and you know that was originally you'd think gosh no one would want that job you know and he would basically attend the king as he used it. Mm-hmm. Um, and Elizabeth would have you know clearly with all of those gowns and so on on, she would also need assistance as she used chamber pot, close mm-hmm. door whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but these weren't simply kind of faceless body servants mm-hmm. who were you know had the most kind of menial tasks. Mm-hmm. They did, on one level, have sort of very menial tasks that we would think were, you know, something that we wouldn't want to do now, mm. but of course by having that kind of access to the monarch, you had a privileged intimacy, you know, to have a one-on-one contact with the monarch while he used the royal commode or Elizabeth <laughs> used the clothes, I mean, you had an opportunity for all kinds of confidences to be shared, I mean, you know, you were in your most vulnerable state. Mm. so. And the women that Elizabeth surrounds herself with are therefore very trusted women Mm -hmm. and very favoured women. And although she expects a lot of them, um, and there are different sort of um, ranks within the sort of um, hierarchy of the privy lodgings, the sort of Mm -hmm. private apartments where the monarch lived, Mm -hmm. those are quite fluid. And at Mm -hmm. the end of the day, it's about, you know, relationships of trust that have been born in the... In you know, in the years before, in, in, in adversity, mm. people who had you know pr- been a proven Protestant faith, mm. of course Elizabeth's faith. Many of those women were uh, cousins of her mother's side of the family. Mm. So you know they were significant individuals in their own right, really. And although Elizabeth treated them quite badly at times, um, nevertheless their pr- position was a, a privileged one.
1: Mm. Well, I, I must admit, when I first you know the first few pages of, of, of your book on Elizabeth. I I sort of sighed, thinking, oh my God, another book on Elizabeth. But it isn't a book about her, really, at all. It's about the territory within which she exists and the way in which she manipulates or is affected by it. And it seems to me that, in some ways, rather like the character of Hamlet isn't a character. It's the the result of everything that happens to him. She seemed, in many ways, in, in, in a similar perspective she's the result of everything and and the controller of nothing in many ways
3: well exactly or the thing that she controls is or tries to control is the image of herself yeah. I And mean, this there's this constant struggle when you have a single unmarried woman um who of course i mean she doesn't become the sort of famous virgin queen until the, the later part of her reign and you know, which is a very sort of savvy political move, because mm-hmm. basically it's the problem of oh my goodness, you've got an unmarried woman who's now post-menopausal. What do you do? How do we make a virtue out of this barren body? How do we make a virtue out of the fact that there's no settled succession? We don't know who's going to inherit the throne. Massive, you know, mm-hmm. profound anxiety and potential instability. So what do we do? Well, let's construct this image of a queen that never mm-hmm. ages. That let's celebrate her virginial body this impregnable body and then brilliant then the armada's defeated bingo you have this blending of impregnable natural natural body impregnable borders of the realm armada portrait you know in a way sums it up hand on the globe defeated armada in the background this is the front cover image pearls signifying chastity a bow strategically placed where you would expect a codpiece so again you know this kind of image you know, wedded together of the natural body and the body mm-hmm. of politic, and the sort of virginal nature, or the impregnable nature of both. And so Elizabeth becomes a construct. I mean, portraits aren't allowed to be painted that don't have the um, officially sanctioned face mask on. I mean, she, you know, no one's allowed to show the Queen getting old. Hence the fact that the women that are around her have this daily task and I'm sure any of the women here will sympathise with it you know to get yourself ready in the morning (laughs) and if you're Elizabeth of course who has you know her hair is falling out she loves sweet things so her teeth are going rotten and they have to and you know she had smallpox she's probably scarred from that so they have to whack on the cosmetics and it gets more and more garish and more and more ridiculous because of course she's almost 70 when she dies so yes she becomes a kind of Construct, she can't let the side down. She has to be this young, ever beautiful queen, even though she's you know in her 60s, limping around and you know becoming increasingly sort of eccentric. I think,
1: without plot, you know, being a plot spoiler, the body and the female body in particular becomes a sort of dominant theme in your work. Uh, In terms of the uh, journey that Louise takes, it. There were radical changes uh, to not only her life but her her physical life.
0: Uh, yes. Well,
1: in yes. terms of the, the bound body, the, the disguised body, the changed body, the, the the body that decides to pretend to be another body.
0: Yes, and I think that that whole theme of natural, well, what what is natural to woman and what is natural to man in these two worlds? I think as I was writing, it became very clear that um, both those roles were enacted, mm. actually. So partway through writing, the mask ball happened. And that just was blindingly obvious once I, once I realised I, w- I was writing about that, because in, that's, that's, a, that's a, a sort of prefiguring of the roles that people take on and how far you can, how far you can go with that, how far mm. you can take on a role as a woman and mm. As a man, and how much you you are trapped within your physical self and mm. your physical gender, mm. and your internal spiritual mm. mental self.
1: Yes, I was going to comment on that because at moments of absolute physical sort of um, realization, the, the spiritual realm kicks in quite big in your in your work, and and do you see that as being a, a, a a, a separate place, or very much part of the same place
0: i don't know i think i think um, I think my characters tend to be able to well at least in this book they they have an internal existence and a sort of external <laughs> manifestation um, and each affects the other mm-hmm. um, but i think it, it's, it's almost a chemical thing that you can you can change i think I, I think I thought of. The characters as you think of, chemical elements that you can change water into air and etcetera into into steam and, and back again, and how much is it still the same yes, elements I mean. and how much is it not? Yeah,
1: Lucy, in um, your overarching sort of view of service, do you see it as essentially female in in in, in description? I mean, clearly not, there's enough evidence within, in, in your writing and within the photographic evidence of, of there being many men, but it seems to be dominated by voices and visions and stories of women. Uh,
2: well, well, my book was about the 20th century, and so um, by which time domestic service of the kind that was most prevalent was overwhelmingly female. But I think that the longer tradition of service... Going way back is a is a, is a, a male tradition um, uh, I mean the servants like footmen and house, um, house stewards, butlers are the descendants of of the entourage of medieval noblemen and so the feminization of service actually left male servants in um, a rather invidious position. They became viewed as rather unmanly and sort of demand um, and uh, they became the slightly sort of foppish, servile figures of caricature um, or, of, the, or of, of a sort of rigid, rather creepy civility of the kind you get in Remains mm. of the Day, for example. Mm. Um, so I think, yes, that the, the experience of the 20th century and, <coughs> and now is that domestic service of the cleaning, domestic cleaning variety is um, largely female. Overwhelmingly
1: female. Uh, a quality that um, colonises the three works uh, written is is actually the speaking voice, the human voice. Yes, there are there are great passages of description and of narration and of, of of development, but but actually people speak to us in in, in the three works, uh, and I feel that in many ways they they not only um, articulate the sense of the age, but the sense of how you want to steer your characters. You, your book in particular, Lucy, seems to be owned actually not by you, by the, but by the people speaking within it.
2: Well, I'm, I'm very glad you say that, because that's what I wanted. I wanted to, this to be a, a sort of cacophony of voices unheard. Um, and and when, one exa- uh, when one looks into it, there are, there are some remarkable records of people describing their lives with a great freshness um, of the kind that you wouldn't get, I think, in a more mm-hmm. official document. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so yeah, so to give to, to give them space for their voices to mm-hmm. shine out was wonderful.
3: Mm-hmm. Do you think that women... Sorry to kind of interrupt the questions. I just wondered, do you think women write about their experiences in more vivid or emotional ways, which, or, you know, in some sense, which lends themselves to the
2: telling of those stories? Yes, I think women... I, I, I think there is a... I used to, to find that looking through the memoirs of male career servants of the butler-footman type, it is interesting how much male uh, sort of upper servants like that almost collude with, with their own caricature. And so you get this sort of butlerese. <laughs> you get books written in this kind of... Just like Remains of the Day, which, which was absolutely a brilliant sort of distillation of that sort of voice. Whereas women servants who... Um, who did the on the whole the donkey work? Um, their voices are are on the whole more varied. They're fresher. They're um, and they're angrier because they 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 on the whole, unless they were going to get married, they weren't going anywhere. Whereas the butler, like you know, is inching his way up the tree like the bank manager. So he's he's a much more official record. Mm, interesting.
1: I want to move to uh, writerly concerns and and, uh, both in terms of fiction and fact clearly there's evidence of great research having happened here these books uh, must have taken time and preparation and work I want to start with uh, you Kate in terms of yeah, how long did this take? Yeah, you're going to say a lifetime, I know, but in terms of there, there are, yes, these um, sort of rhapsodic, dreamlike phrases within it, but there are also some very specific, very detailed, probably historically accurate, although I'm not the historian to say yay or nay, but it feels accurate, it feels authentic. How long has that taken?
0: Well, it's how long is a piece of string where research is concerned. And I'd really like to know how um, uh, how you both, Yes, so we'll I get to them. I'm asking you. Well, well because because I, I I was a journalist for years, and I start, when I had the idea for the book, I started researching in a journalistic sort of way, find out all there is to know, mm. you know cross-reference, uh, read as much as I could. And because I'd never written fiction before, what I didn't realise was that at some point I would have to stop That's doing fair. that, and that came much sooner than I imagined. And now I realise there's a point where it's almost like that you need to do two phases of research. There's the first one, which is like putting hot air in the, in the balloon, just to, you know, give you some some air under your wings to, to to make it lift off. And then the wonderful part of it is is that then your imagination can take over in a way that it, it never could with writing fact and journalism, you know, because in that then you're writing about real people who get quite cross if you make things up about them.
1: These are fictional people doing real things, though. They're not just all sort of floating around on a sort of remote planet. Yeah. They're they're on the ocean doing things and surviving. Yes. And so, how how many libraries and how many hours does that take?
0: Um, it, well, I spent hours and hours and hours, literally, just reading every seafaring book I could get. But the most useful one in the end was um, a book uh, that illustrated, darling. Kindersley books. There was a, someone called Stephen <laughs> Stephen Lasty, I think, about the man of war, and it's just these cross sections of of the man of war, and that that did it basically. How do you get from the poop down to oh the right. orlop mm. you know, How how high is the mizzen mast? You know, where do they keep the maggoty barrels of pork? Mm. Um, so there's, there's there's those there's the props level, mm. knowing what um, you know what what was around them. Mm. But the most, the more interesting, what turned out to be the more interesting sort of research was, um, the, 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 hard, the stuff that's harder to measure. The, the, what, what was important to people? What, what their horizons mm-hmm. were? What what they what they saw as above and below them? Mm-hmm. What was significant and what wasn't? And that was that was much much harder to work out. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting, really, because
1: I, I I would actually say that Anna, your your work. In the greatest sense, also reads like fiction. It's beautifully constructed, and and um, not overly turgid with sort of the dullness of fact. You know, we've all read the Elizabethan stuff. Thank you very much. Give us something new, and you do. But you're you're economic with it, and you're um, sure with it. But I, I sort of feel that almost there's a little novelist in you, sort of lurking somewhere.
3: Well, I mean, I would take that as a real compliment. I mean, some historians might not, but I'm, you know, that... I loved
1: it. <laughs>
3: um, I mean, you know, the idea of sort of being like a novel. I mean, in a way, that's exactly what I wanted it to be like. I mean, I, I hate the idea yeah. that, you know, there's the historians who write dry history books, and then there's the kind of historical novelists who get to kind of talk yeah. about beds and people bouncing on them and, and kind of what bedchambers might have, you know, smelt like or looked mm. like, and, you know, what putting on makeup might have involved and mm. that kind of detail... And I suppose I wanted to, I wanted to write a book that I wouldn't get bored with Mm. because I get bored in a lot of those sort of turgid Elizabethan Mm. history books. And I suppose there's a kind of, I'm sort of driven both as a historian and as a kind of academic looking at obviously the sources and wanting to piece different things together and find, well, either new sources or new combinations of sources Mm. to um, sort of construct new pictures or um, sort of new textures within pictures mm. but I also am very much driven by the sort of creative part which is how am I going to write this in a way that you know is quite visual that you know that is um, that people can actually imagine and that you know I'm kind al- of always tend to write in relatively short chapters and mm. I mean maybe that's my own sort of attention deficit or concentration span but I just think I frame it, frame. I mean, with this book, in my mind, I was thinking that um, at the heart of the story was basically this bed. Mm-hmm. And when I was writing it, I was almost writing it as if it was a play, and that every chapter I wanted to, even in the great complexities of the politics of the Elizabethan period, which, you know, are very complicated, and it's you know abroad and at home, and you know all of that going on, the religious and the political. Um, I wanted there to be a sort of organising focus of each chapter of being the bed, which was a sort of Mm. stage, really, of Elizabeth's Mm. reign, where, you know, in a way, the politics was ultimately played out, or at least the implications of the politics were sort of felt, because Mm. it was where the Queen's body, you know, at its heart Mm. really was. Um, And so even though I sort of ventured far and wide in terms of material, I still wanted it to come back to an idea of the bed and the intimate. You know, in the same way that at the end of the day, although you know, the Queen might have been making decisions about, you know, funding exploration in the new world or whatever. At the end of the day, she went back to her bedchamber. And I think, you know, Mm. and through looking at that prism, through that prism, I actually found, um, you know, real sort of insightful and vivid moments that Mm. I suppose I hadn't hadn't really struck me before. For example, I mean, you know, soon after the defeat of the Armada, which clearly is one of the sort of You know climactic moments of Elizabeth's reign that she's most famous for, and you know latest Hollywood film. There she was in her you know of Kate Blanchett with her armour on. That was actually there was no evidence that she wore armour at Tilbury, but anyway, that's how she's sort of you know that's how she's popularly perceived um, today. You know continues from then, and the reality is just a few weeks after the defeat of the Armada, as you know the court was in the midst of celebrations. Elizabeth withdrew to her bedchamber because she was mourning the death of Robert Dudley. And, you know, she was remained there um, for a number of days, wouldn't come out, and in the end, the door had to be broken down. And I just think suddenly, you know, when you look at something so familiar from a new perspective, you see this sort of real intimate kind of glimpse Mm -hmm. of the Queen, really. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, I mean, I'm very much inspired by historical novelists. Mm. And, um, I mean, I, I I run a historical uh, a salon uh, for um, novelistic... We call it ourselves the um, Novel novel History Salon. And the idea is for kind of historical novelists and historians that write with a, in a sort of novelistic kind of way. So in other words, they're just open to different mm. sorts of writing mm. and structure and so on. Mm. And I suppose what I've sort of really learned in the process of writing this book is that you can... There's an extra level of kind of research beyond what the obvious sources say. So you might say that, you know, um, such and such was uh, at court or, you know, um, a letter was written to one of the women saying come back to, you know, court because Elizabeth, you know, won't sleep without you and her regular bedfellows, you know, broken her leg or whatever. But then you think, okay, well, what would... know, where would the bedfellow have been? Who would she Mm -hmm. have been with when she came back to court? You know what would what was the bed? You know what did it look like? What was you know when the when they put makeup on the Queen? Well, where did that makeup come from? Mm. Um, and so although you know the first line of sources only tell you certain things, yes. you then think, well, actually, how was that made? Yes. Or well, where did that soap come yeah. from? And you know so suddenly you begin to ask questions, mm. and you try and go as far as you can with the sources. And I suppose what's different then to what a, um, a novelist can do is. You know, put a new character into a place,
0: to you know,
3: to reveal yeah, truths yeah. or put dialogue. Yeah. That, you know, in order to go that extra mile, yeah. um, but as far as I could, in terms mm-hmm. of creating a kind of braided history, as Natalie mm-hmm. zeman mm-hmm. Davis to it, this a sort of multi-layered history mm-hmm. of sort of sensual kind of fact as well as fact mm-hmm. itself. Um, that's what I did, and so if it kind of has a sort of novelistic feel mm-hmm. to it, then great. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> Lucy, the, the 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 feel of your book is often. Um, defined by closeness to objects and the evolution of objects, as as much as people in, in in service, and and those are often intimate objects and sort of very domestic and often sort of you know sort of bland and almost forgotten, but become very heightened in in your curation of them, and so, and, and and so you know bits in the kitchen or or, or brushes on the front step become very significant and. Um, had, had you, in a sense, um, made a decision to sort of articulate your research through objects?
2: No, I don't. I don't think I made that decision. But like Anna, I think um, I'm interested in following an object uh, a little bit back, giving an object a backstory, because mm. one is interested to know where soap comes from, mm. or you know what do you use to black a range. What is blacking? <laughs> you know, what it, where, where does it come from? Doesn't it leave a terrible mess? You know that. <laughs> Um, and I suppose because the domestic life of the home is something that absolutely everyone yeah. has some experience of. I mean, there's um, there's virtually no one who can say that they have never, at any point, um, <laughs> you know, wondered how they're going to deal with the dust or do the washing up. Um, it's seemed to me that the, the sort of tools with which we use, with, with, with which we employ to do yeah. that are a very eloquent way of telling the story of, of how we live in mm. our everyday life. Mm. Um, and, and, it is very, and it was particularly fascinating in the 20th century because the speed of change, um, especially with the introduction of, te- of electricity, mm. um, really you know, changed the running of the home mm. out of all recognition.
1: I'd like you to just further describe um, a little bit of a discussion that we had before uh, this evening about that sort of strange um, backward step that uh, the middle classes took once gas and electricity became available and, and the sort of, sort, of, sort of peculiar snobbishness to um, the availability of technology
2: yes I mean that was a revelation to me actually that that, that uh, in the early years of the of the development of, of things like gas and electricity the the aristocracy were very quick to take them up, so there are all sorts of, of large houses were uh, given electricity and hot running water and things at the very beginning. But then as they, those technologies percolated down into the middle class <laughs> and were being used for lighting showrooms, showrooms <laughs> appear to have been considered the acme of awfulness. <laughs>
3: um,
2: so uh, then suddenly there was a sort of retreat <laughs> and it became more fashionable among in, in the larger houses to cultivate um, a, a willful um, a primitiveness about mm-hmm. these things, so, so that you know. And then you get this sort of cult of cold houses, and mm-hmm. freezing corridors, and um, and enormous, cumbersome, labour-intensive meals. Mm-hmm. Um, and gas was used in the servants' quarters because it. Um, it meant the servants could work for longer, but not in the mm. main rooms of the house. Um, partly because it was smelly, and it was thought to be damaging to antiques. Um, but <laughs> also partly because it was a bit—it was considered a bit showroom. Mm. And um, and candlelight, you know, which stressed the sort of pattern of age, you mm. know, the tunnel of antiquity, um, mm. you know, the great sort of English line of generations that the. All great English houses, even if they were built in 1850 were striving to affect this rather sort of grand um, reflection of the past and that became much more fashionable mm-hmm.
1: what, what seems um, strangely connected in a sense to your your fictional account of 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 people in service and serving or, or, or sort of connected in, in, in some relationship is, is how sensual that becomes and and i, I it was very late on that I sort of dared browse the, the sort of back cover as it were and noticed that y- you, you had it in, in your very varied career actually sort of um, t- tell us about your very varied career and you, you know where I'm going but, <laughs> yeah. but, y- but you, your, your fiction seems incredibly tactile and seems to be um, sated in, in ideas of touch and then lo and behold on the back cover it says
0: Massage Practitioner Massage Practitioner <laughs>
1: Uh, and and yet it was it what fascinated me was the sort of levels of permission and the levels of denial of touch whether it was a sort of fearful touch anticipated or, or yearning and ached for touch never qu- qu- quite had and it, 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 is that really that that aspect of of um a, a given sort of touch hierarchy uh, part of of an age that you saw or just something that you're into <laughs> um
0: i think I think it's if, if you're if you're imagining your if you're making up your world, mm. like I did in the book, um, and you have worked as a massage practitioner, then touch is is the obvious way to go about it, and and especially in that that mistress-maid relationship. So that that question of of intimacy, living so closely, and and as far as I can make out, at, in the 1740s, which is when my book is written, it wasn't that unusual for a mistress and a maid to sleep together, if you know, if they got on at all. Um, but, but but exactly within that there are there are hierarchies mm. of, of what's what's permitted intimate touch mm. and, and what's not. But it was also part of this that that project to, to, to find out what, you know, the gaps between what what you know. So you can you can say maids slept in their beds with their mistresses, but what was that really, mm. really like, mm. you know?
1: But the sleeping in your book also has uh, the most terrifying chapters, where disease is the necessity for the 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 fellowship of the bed in terms of two people in a bed, mm. one willing disease almost to enter her really, and and that certainly was something that of the Elizabethan bed too. Th- those descriptions in in, in fictional form uh, were graphic in the extreme, and where's the source of, of of that knowledge beyond the merely fictional
0: um well that came there was a it's funny how you little bits of research that sort of lodge that came from being told and i can't remember which king it was some king at some point in history um, some when he had smallpox which is what my character has in the book um, somebody came to volunteer to come to sleep with him to To draw it Mm. off, Mm. Um, so that's that's what the maid does in the book. Risks her her life, and I think in Elizabeth, Mm. there's what somebody shuts herself up with. Well, I mean,
3: Mary Sidney, who of course is the sister of Robert Dudley, the Queen's great great favorite, attends on the Queen when she has smallpox, which is a kind of act of again, sort of self-sacrifice, but also privileged access. and she and um, Mary Sidney ends up
0: getting. Um, smallpox. And she's really disfigured. Yeah, absolutely. She suffers for it. Yeah,
3: so, I mean, it was a real kind of mark of service. And then it seems, I mean, oddly, Elizabeth sort of shuns her a bit and and in a way, you'd think that Elizabeth would be very grateful. But I think, I mean, Elizabeth gets smallpox sort of four years into her reign and it, you know, seems very likely that she's going to die. I mean, you know, she gets very sick, she's unconscious for a period um, and it really does sort of bring to the fore how fragile the whole country is but you know the the idea that you know if the life of or the breath of the queen is extinguished there goes of course not only the elizabethan um state but also the protestant church mary queen of scots was there in the background you know catholic presence looming and also of course the tudor dynasty which i mean again people kind of i think either forget or give elizabeth a lot of um, slack on the fact mm. that basically, she, you know, she didn't do what she was supposed to do, which was to marry and have an heir. Mm. Thereby, you know, the Tudor dynasty died out with Elizabeth. Mm. Um, you know, all the Tudor, you know, the Tudor dynasty, which is celebrated as seen as, you know, one of the sort of great uh, sort of periods in English history. But Elizabeth was the one who, you know, failed to perpetuate it. Mm. Um, but I think that the smallpox episode not only underlined for her counsellors how fragile her life was and therefore the the state but also it it brought home to her her own mortality and her own vulnerability and I think when she looked at Mary Sidney she saw what could you know she could she saw what have what might have um, happened to her but it and it also brought back you know those very Sort of dangerous and quite scary, um, you know, memories that she had. And she said afterwards to the sort of physician that you know healed her or looked after her when she was ill that you know she didn't want to be reminded of it ever again. And for a while she didn't want to go back to Hampton Court where she suffered um, because it was you know too painful memories.
1: It's a very mortal book, actually. There are, you know, just as you know, you feel you're getting in your stride. Then there's a paragraph which sort of says, you know, late that night, you know, a crippling stomach. <laughs> I'll hit that person and they snuffed it and you you know this sort of accidental nature of mortality seems to sort of really walk through the pages of, of, of her court it's quite terrifying actually
3: well I, think that, I mean i think that's really important i mean you know the fact that we you know the elizabethan age when we think about it you know we think of all the sort of achievements the cultural achievements the architectural achievements overseas exploration and then this great glamorous queen who presides over you know this glamorous court with, you know, rich in entertainments and all of that, but actually you know, the very fragility of life you know, was underpinned everything. The Queen's vulnerability um, you know, with although she might go to great lengths to protest her youth and, you know, and whatever. And she was a real trooper. I mean, you know, she did have you know, she had a sort of gammy leg at one point and still she, you know, she and would hunting. go out riding and hunting yeah. right until the very, very last days of her life did she acknowledge the fact um, that, you know, she couldn't give any more sort of ambassadorial audiences, you know, and, and in, you know, right up to, you know, just short, few months before, she's giving her, you know, she's giving an audience um, to the ambassadors, she's assuring them herself of, you know, assuring them of her kind of vim and vigour, um, And so, but of course, yes, I mean, not only death from, um, you know, natural causes, if you like, but also, of course, death from poisonings or the assassin's dagger. And, you know, I think, again, what I've tried to do in the book is emphasise actually you know, the fact that the bed chamber and the queen's body was the target of all kinds of assassination plots, some weird and wonderful and probably made up by Elizabeth's own spymasters to try and convince her to actually be a bit more careful about her own kind of protection because Elizabeth was like, yeah, what the hell, really? You know, and Elizabeth in many ways, you know, I think one of the reasons why we like her was the fact that she kind of inaugurated the royal walkabout in lots of ways. I mean, she went on progress all the time and she would dr- get her carriage driven into the crowds. And, and, you know, she wanted and she felt she needed to be seen by her people. Um, so, you know, all of this is very much... Um, I mean, she's walking a very, very fine line. And I think that's, you know, there's a sort of... I mean, for all the uh, fictional nonsense of the Tudors on the BBC, one thing I did say about it when I reviewed it right at the beginning was there's a kind of raw physicality about its depiction of the court that does ring true. Mm. You know, sort of lingering lustful looks (laughs) and longings, and Mm. of course, for some people, probably, you know, rampant sex, Mm. Mm. Um, but for others, you know, like Elizabeth, who, you know, feared, of course, pregnancy and the kind of, you know, undermining of her chaste body, probably Mm. not.
1: There isn't too much rampant sex in your book, Lucy. It seems that everybody was just no, too busy. No. Um, you know, I mean,
3: I set you up. For yeah, yeah, I
1: mean, I mean, not that I was looking for it, but I was looking for it. And and um, is is really the world of service as you see it in the sort of early twentieth century just too damned busy for these sort of Downton escapades that we've come to love?
2: Well, I wish actually I had put some more sex in the book. So do I. Because. I think that there, that that is an interesting feature of the master-servant or mistress-servant relationship, but I couldn't find the evidence. I mean, I, I know it is true, but of course some of them are sitting are in are the very... room tonight.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> the people well, were scared to write about it, presumably. Of really. course, yeah. isn't it? And, um, and there are, I mean, there are cases of individual cases of of um, uh, 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 the son of the family marrying a housemaid. It happened at Up in Sussex, for example. Um, but they're very—they're sort of singular, and it's quite difficult to draw in a book that's trying to draw a panorama of themes. It's quite—it's quite difficult to know what to do with sort of singular cases like this. Just talk us um, through
1: that singular case, although it's not in the book. So, so, so talk us through that. Uh, the the, well, the boss like marries the servant.
2: Yes, that—that. I mean, we know this from. H. G. Wells's mother was the housekeeper at Uppark and she, um, her mistress, had been a former housemaid who had married the heir. And uh, H. G. Wells describes his mother's um, feeling of both sort of slightly chippy inferiority and superiority mm-hmm. towards this woman, who was locked in a kind of rather difficult. Uh, slightly shunned by the neighbouring gentry, I think. Um, uh, so I think it was, it was a difficult... It was an invidious position to be in, often. But then, ag- again, you know, there are plenty of cases... Well, not there aren't plenty of cases, but among the singular cases that I found, there are ones where you know that it, that it has worked, and mm-hmm. it is possible. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a remar- rather remarkable woman called Violet Firth, who, in the 1920s, wrote a book called The Psychology of the Servant Question just after the First War. And she says that uh, that the only way that on both sides of the Green Bay's door, as it were, that, that, that this, this relationship can be resolved is when a servant can freely choose a spouse from the family they serve. Um, and so I think it was considered a uh, yeah, it was. It, it's a sort of choppy area, yeah. and if I and I suppose I could have done, I could have looked, for example, at the the illegitimate children thing, you know, because. Uh, um, but I felt that was another book, really. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, that choppy area uh, dominates the world that you bring to us, Kate. I mean, it's sort of choppy to the point of erotic, and then it blows up even further, really. Uh, it, it, um, talk us through some of that without spoiling the plot.
0: What, the, the relationship. Um,
1: well, I, I'm thinking in terms of... Here we have a, a, a maid who made milk, butter and cheese, g- giving herself permission to fall in love with... Someone beyond her caste, beyond her her class, and the extraordinary odyssey that it, that that permission takes her on.
0: Well, the way the way I saw that was that she she's very she's, very, she's Lou is very young. She's mid mid teens, and she doesn't know herself. All she knows is that um, she has to get away from. Um, what, the, what her mother has, the fate her mother has warned her against, which is um, uh, succumbing, succumbing to men, basically. <laughs> um, they bring you down. And so, so she attaches herself to her mistress, and her mission is to be a really good lady's maid. But then that sort of gets beyond itself. Um, and so I, 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 as I was writing, I, did, I didn't know where it was going to go. So I, I think I was just writing, trying to, to imagine how she would have imagined it herself and where it would go. And she ends up in situations she, she would never have dreamt of being in, but one step at, one step at a time, one, one more intimacy.
1: I'm very interested in that phrase when I was writing it. I didn't quite know where it was going to go because we have... You know, two two writers here who sort of have the the birth and life and death date of a monarch and 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 the sort of key stages uh, pl- plotted out in, in in the 20th century and uh, the early 20th century of, of of service. But here we have you know, sky's the limit. How how did you construct, in a sense, that narrative? Was it did you know was it a mapped out thing that the, that you then sort of filled in the detail, or or, or did you just sort right. of let the muse descend. No,
0: it was the joy of writing fiction after years and years and years of, of writing fact-based stuff that it could just take on its own life and explode and go places. Mm. So, no, I had all I started with was this this basic situation, um, and then see see where see where that went. So, as I was writing it, I didn't know what the end was going to be. I didn't know whether my lovers were going to meet again or be together forever or not. So, it took it took on its own dynamic mm. that was just wonderful mm-hmm.
1: and how long was that writing process
0: um well it, it was a two was a, there was there was another book inside this but when I started writing with this idea of this situation I wanted to my aim was to write a, a pastiche of um an 18th century author called Tobias Smollett who wrote a book called The Adventures of Roderick Random in 1748 which was just this amazing, rollicking story of um, rambunctious, you know, revelry. Um, and I'd never, never I had I'd been very snooty about the 18th century. I just thought it was all Pope and Swift and <laughs> wasn't really interested. And then I discovered, and the, the point of this is it's not late 18th century, genteel, high literature. It's really early novel, no rules, you know, gloves off, go where you like, do what you like. Um, So anyway, that that was the starting point. I wrote 40,000 words of Smollett, um, and then put that to one side, and then had the brainwave about the structure, because it did start, it was was going to be the rollicking adventures of Lou Fletcher, (laughs) Um, and and then it reconfigured itself as these two interlocking stories. So overall, that that was about a year and a half of writing the new version, and maybe a year of of the Smollett prestige put together
1: Um, I'm feeling rather greedy and I'm looking at my luminous clock on the floor and realising that actually I should share some of this uh, opportunity to uh, talk with these writers and so if you have in true tradition of question time I am now Robin Day, if you have um, any questions uh, I think the um, form is that you raise your hand and ask them and I will repeat those questions And then we will all have wonderful answers. So if you have a question for any one of the salon guests, please raise your hand and we'll try to to address that question. Or has all been answered? Oh, no, no. Yes, sir. Hello.
4: I
0: suppose this is a a question for Anna and Lucy, really. But I'm interested in this
1: dynamic of the servant occupying, physically occupying the bedchamber. And I Mm -hmm. wonder when that dynamic ended and what sort of shift sort of uh, preceded it.
3: Um, I mean, well, the whole idea of bed fellowship was long standing, really. I mean, as has been sort of pointed out, I mean, masters and servants um, would regularly um, share a bed. Travellers in, in inns would regularly, um, you know, share beds. I mean, we're, it's very kind of, um, it's, it seems hard for us to get beyond an idea of bed sharing as um, basically being promiscuous. Um, bedfellowship was the usual practice, and it was um, it was about intimacy and familiarity. Um, but at the same time, there were kind of strict rules, and which you know Kate was sort of referring to. And so it wasn't necess- you know, really a salacious thing at all. It was just standard practice. Um, and at a court, it was particularly important due, um, because of um, you know fear of assassination, mm. as well as um, especially uh, with, for example, Elizabeth, a single, unmarried woman. I mean, it need, you know, these women were kind of custodians of the queen's honour um, and guardians of the truths of, of what was going on at court. Um, obviously, then, during, I mean, when you have a, um, a married um, monarch, of course, you would also, you you'd still have intimates of the um, of the bedchambers. I mean, not necessarily sleeping with the couple although at times you would have servants on pallet beds on the floor again that was you know um but also i mean you know a married couple might not sleep together all the time anyway i mean certainly you know at court so there was sort of different configurations of sleeping arrangements um i don't know whether you want to talk about when the practice of master and servants kind of died out
2: well aristocratic um, homes I don't know. I'm just, just thinking of singular incidents. I just think Winifred Foley, who wrote a very um, vivid account of life in service in the 20s. Her first job, she was required to sleep with her mistress, who would then have been very old. Um, so, and, pos- and in the middle of the country, so possibly was not only a, a Victorian, but in her habits, a pre Victorian. Because I think that. Yes, because I, I don't think people in the past would have had our, our view of sharing beds at all. I mean, they, they would have been much more relaxed about the idea of, of sharing beds with siblings or even and friends. But um, certainly, there is a sort of nineteenth a mid-nineteenth century moment when the middle-class home develops uh, um, areas of the house that are, are sort of separate. Mm. And you get the beginning of this feeling of of, of 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 a house being divided into constituent parts, which I think is new, um, and so servants have their own little bedrooms, their own quarters, or they sleep in the kitchen um, and I think in previous generations in previous centuries, that would not have um, have been the case. Mm. Um, they, they would have felt quite comfortable as Elizabeth yeah. was with sleep, I mean, I think, sharing a room or, yeah. or or even a bed with a, I with think a servant. I mean,
3: we, exactly. It's the sort of privatization of intimacy yeah. and touch, and partly, you know, as as you, I mean, arch, it's sort of led by architecture. You know, as mm. rooms as there's more rooms, things mm. can be separated off, and the things that were once, you know, in a sort of shared room, you know, multi-purpose room, things become, you know, more specific, and that, so you do have more of a sense of a public and a private self, I yes. think, as
2: well. And you get the primacy of the, of the Victorian family, I think, at the centre. It becomes a much more sort of unitary thing. It becomes the, you know, the father, okay. the mother and the children. And,
0: mm-hmm. and it's also heat, though. I spent the weekend at this landmark trust called Warden Abbey, this big old... Uh, 13th century building which and in the logbook, all the comments from people who stayed in the winter was that it was just <laughs> absolutely freezing. <laughs> so for centuries you'd be insane to sleep in a separate bed from yeah. your servant. If there was someone in the yeah. room providing body warmth, you'd go for it. You'd
1: you? also be insane to sleep in a bed with someone with smallpox but that's another one. <laughs> uh, uh, a couple more questions. Yes, sir. Yeah. Can you
4: hear me all right? I don't
1: like we don't need the, the microphone. Yeah. So. Um, well, you
4: were all working I I was watching daytime television and uh, this morning there was the um, ceremony marking the 60th anniversary of the coronation and it was quite striking how repeatedly in the service the Queen and when they were describing the 60 years of the Queen on the throne how much she thought of it as an act of service, that she kept in all the text and when she writes about it, it's clear that the queen thinks of her role as one of duty, of service, as a vocation. And she sees herself as the servant of the people and as the servant of God and Lucy's spoken in the book about how, this, how service kind of ran out of steam or came to an end of the 20th century around the time of the Second World War. And obviously there are still people uh, in roles of service who are working as uh, cooks and bodyguards and life coaches and trainers and all those kind of things. But it's no longer, I think, largely seen as something, a vocational thing. It's seen as a market transaction. So, I suppose my question for Lucy would be something like, how much of this end of service, because this language of the of Queen's of is so you're fairly archaic, and am sure, to most of the leaders, How much of it was it um, technological about washing machines? And how much of the end of service is uh, theological? You know, that we no longer think of ourselves as uh, in a world in which to serve is the role that God has given us or that, we're, uh, that we do it out of our understanding of uh, it seemly so to do as the king goes.
1: Technology or theology?
2: Well, I think that's very interesting because I think that that the idea of service you're talking about there is really the idea of service that anna 's world the world of anna 's book would would understand, and actually also of Kate's, which is that that service is yes it 's a sort of state of uh, it 's a state of being isn 't it when in service to 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 your crown in service to your monarch in service to your god, and so on and I think by the the sort of service that i 'm talking about in the book is when service has dwindled um, or off, gone off course into, into something that is about labour. Um, and although, of course, there were career servants um, who regarded service as being a vocation, there were butlers and so on and housekeepers who, who I think really did feel that the pursuit of perfection um, which the big house uh, offered them was an end in itself, but I think, on the whole, yes, it had shifted over into be something into something that was um, laborious and uh, had had lost status and had become had become the sort of serving us, doing the work we didn't want to do ourselves. So it had, it had moved over.
3: I mean, I, I perhaps would add, if I may, that I mean, I think, I think, in the, in a way, the Queen's rhetoric, and I know it's more than rhetoric, is actually very savvy one and I think actually it isn't going to be the end of that because I think I mean I think the monarchy in order for it to be sustained in a way I mean already there's talk of this kind of welfare monarchy I mean it, it has to, in order for it to be seen to have a function and a purpose and for it to be supported it needs to be seen to be doing things be being. and I think that I mean I, I was doing some commentary on the, um, the coronation thing today and the other, one of the things I was thinking about is that you know, no doubt, that was a big twen- the twentieth century public spectacle. But you know, how is that read in the twenty first century? And the key thing that happens in the coronation, of course, which is which is what the queen in this notion of service, or the you know going forward, is what they're trying to kind of perhaps get around or flip on its head is the notion that at the anointing in a coronation, this mere mortal, this woman, mm-hmm. after with the anointing and the crowning, becomes a monarch, becomes set above everybody else. And so, in a way, the Queen, um, you know, and I don't think it's a strategic thing, I believe that she very much has a sense of, you know, service and duty. But in a way, she's trying to justify that position of, you know, of her being set above everybody else. And I think, which is, you know, how comfortable are people with that in the 21st century? You know, it wasn't shown on TV. They had a, you know, you, it's, even that bit was covered. And I just wonder that going forward, isn't the monarchy, monarchy going to actually be, in a way, perhaps re re-forging or recasting itself using these ideas about service but service to the people
2: and of course the only, the only acceptable way now in which you can use the word servant is if you're talking about a public servant <laughs> or a civil servant um, it's a sort of selfless yeah. noble thing yes
1: Uh, mindful of time, I just have one really crass question for the three of you. I I like crass questions. Which is, which is the worst service job you must have you you three have done? I mean, you must have had a range of jobs because you're literary types. They never have work. So, um, the the worst job of service you have had?
0: The worst job of service. The one, there have been quite a few actually, but the one that springs (laughs) to mind was my very, very first job when I was about 13. And it was working for the hotel around the corner that catered for coach parties going to Blackpool mm-hmm. so they would arrive in the morning and they'd have a glass of, of sherry sweet sure. sherry and dry sherry bomb off to Blackpool, come back spend the night and disappear and that job, that was changing 25 beds <laughs> I think and at 13 it was quite an eye opener to, to what people got up to <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I think I think we'll move on to the next um, example. That um, how nasty. Yeah, yeah. it may be what I. Yes. It <laughs> um, yeah, hopefully, a slightly brighter prospect here. What was the the, the, the service of your employment history?
2: Uh, well, my mother. I don't. I think the worst thing I ever did was I worked for a catering company when I was a teenager that required us to dress up as. Um, British Airways stewardesses <laughs> <laughs> and serve a sort of posh airline food banquet. And uh, wow, where uh, do they do that, that thing? Wasn't, that wasn't that wasn't disgusting, but it was it was um, I don't know, it was faintly depressing. Yeah. So.
1: <laughs> faintly depressing. And lastly, then, i uh,
2: so I can trust. <laughs> oh, <wasn't it laughs> tra- tra- my job my, my question
1: department. really is: Have you shared a bed with someone with smallpox? That's my
3: question. <laughs> no. <laughs> Not to my knowledge, no. And I was going to say I can't even trump the service jobs. I think I did have a when I was at, my first job was doing a paper round, um, but because it was sort of uphill and it was always going to happen at the end of the day because it was the sort of local newspaper. My mother ended up doing it, yeah. <laughs> so I clearly had. So quite she a was regal in service content- to you, yeah. <laughs> yes, 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 yes.
1: Okay, well, yes, um, really on behalf of all all of us here, we have uh, very much enjoyed this salon. And thank you, Anna and Lucy and Kate. And my name is Jeff Coleman. Thank you, and good night. Thank you.
0: <laughs> thank you so much. It's been such an interesting event with you all. And thank you very much, Jeff Coleman, for interviewing. Um, there are books on sale at the back, if you'd like to buy one on your way out. And please do take your programme with you um, and sign our visitors' book. We have some very exciting events coming up. Um, next week we have cities are good for you with leo hollis and pd smith and we also um have just released our margaret atwood tickets so you'd be very wise to buy one right now before they sell out so (laughs) thank you all very much for coming